Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Yuma, daf Samech Vav, page 66. So we have a new Mishnah on this daf, and that's really going to get the bulk of our attention. But I just want to mention a follow-up to one of the points that we've been discussing for a couple of days, and more specifically, I guess, yesterday, in terms of what happens, this idea that the that a year after, you know, that the the goat and the cow and all of it, none of it is going to be good for the following Yom Kippur. It has, the animals have to be disposed of, meaning they have to be set to pasture and they have to be allowed to die. And on this stuff, we have some of the questions, Yordana, that you specifically were asking yesterday, namely, but why does it have to die, right? Like, why can't it simply be left to pasture, get a blemish, be sold, be redeemed, right? The, the same way that there's a general... Um, procedure in place for when something goes wrong with consecrated property to be able to redeem it and carry on, right? There's not usually an expectation of just destroying it or in, you know, allowing an animal to die. So in so the first part of this daf takes that up again and says, you know, and what about, and, and adds to the mix, I would say, I guess, and says, what about an animal that isn't even um, going to be a full year old by the time that like the, the, by the time we get to the next Jim Kipper, it will still be within its year. It won't be too old. And the answer is, yes, too bad. I mean, like, I know that's not very satisfying, but basically the, the, the answer, the way Chazal presented is that we're going to be careful to make sure that there would be no confusion that, that an animal that even technically could be offered the next Jim Kipper, we're going to make sure that it's prohibited to do so lest one come to do so under circumstances that would be prohibited to begin with, as opposed to the case that would be allowed. So for whatever reason that I feel like we're still circling on the motivation here, but the, or the underlying cause, but the, the idea that um, anything that is used in one year of Yom Kippur with the goats, meaning, and the other sacrifice, whether it is, um, well, Again, if if there's a regular goral and the two goats go their respective ways, then there's nothing left to talk about. But if something happens to the set of goats so that there's another set of goats brought and another goral, and then the idea of, well, now what do we do with any left of Because there's going to be, you know, a potential of three animals, in which case one will be not used for that Yom Kippur. What do you do with that animal come the following year? Look, it might be good and we can come up with circumstances. And in fact, Chazal do come up with circumstances where the animal would still be technically, for all intents and purposes, kosher to be used the following year. And Chazal saying, no, no, we're not going to allow that to happen on the on the more obscure case that would that would be permitted, lest somebody think that it's really permitted and um and and run into trouble. So again, I find it really interesting that this humra, and I you know, I'll call it a stringency, but it's in the best sense of the word in that they it's very clearly trying to protect against confusion kicking in, uh, even if I'm skeptical over whether there would have to be that confusion. Couldn't there be a different way around it? It does seem to be taken incredibly seriously and, um, and, and conclusively, right? Meaning it's, we saw some open discussion yesterday. Here the Gemara closes it, right? We, we do not push this. Yeah, I, the Gemara thing is very taken this scenario with the cow and with the cow and the goat 
Um, and it's quite amazing how much time they spend actually discussing it. It really is. So I'm going to actually move us along, I think, now to the new Mishnah. Um, the new Mishnah, I was still talking about the scapegoat, Matt Neaton. Right, so we're still talking about the Imkipper service. We're still talking about how the Kohen Gadol will come over to the goat, the goat that is going to Azazel. He does what's called smicha yadaim. He puts his two hands on the head of the goat. And he confesses. And we've talked about this confessional before. Here, excuse me, here it's listed as part of the procedure. And we have here the text of what his confession was to be. Ana Hashem, please God. Chatu, avu, pashu. The implication is that all of B'nai Israel, all of the people, all of God's people, have sinned and transgressed and sinned, right? These are all different words that basically means, basically mean a violation of God's word. Lefanecha amchabi Israel, meaning they've done this before you, your people, Israel. Ana Hashem, please Hashem. Kaperna lechataim vlavonot lepshaim. This is please, you know, his plea to Hashem is to atone for the sins and the transgressions and the violations that were sinned and and you know experienced and um and all the tr- transgressions in place before God, meaning those conducted by Ben Israel. As it is written in your Torah. Or in the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, Ki bayom hazeh yichaper leichem letaher etchem mikol chatotechem lifnei Hashem titaru. We have a verse from Vayikra that says basically that God is promising to make sure that the home will be purified, that the uh, sins will be redeemed, not redeemed, atoned. Right? Meaning all of this is in the Mishnah as as ritual, and yet it's very much the essence of the day, and to the extent that it is it is listed explicitly in the Torah itself. So the, the Mishnah rather continues, and for those, I, I can't speak to all nuschaot, all liturgical formulations, but for those who daven from the same machzor that I use, this formulation will be familiar to you from the Yom Kippur liturgy. So the koanim and the people that were standing in the temple courtyard when they would hear the name, the explicit name of God, come out of the name of the Kohen Gadol, meaning he's in the Kodesh Kodeshim, and he's uttering the name of God for the one time a year that anybody does it. It's one person, one time a year. Um, so everybody would hear it. They would bend their, at their knees, they would prostrate themselves and they would fall on their faces, the Omrim, and they would say, and again, this is presumably together, right? Baruch Shem Kavon Olam Va'ed, blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom, meaning God's glorious kingdom, forever and ever. That the the degree of awe and being impressed, right, is such that it literally brings the people to their knees so that they can just kind of it, it reads as a spontaneous utterance of blessed is God's glorious kingdom. Of course, if you do it every year and you know that it's coming, it might be a little bit less spontaneous. Um, so what happens? After all of this, the confession from the Kohen Gadol, he would give the string, I guess, he would pass it on to the person who's going to 
lead the scapegoat out into the wilderness. So what happens? So it's an interesting deal. At the end of this big drama, we get a small halachic point. Namely, halachically, it would really be acceptable for anybody to accompany the goat out into the wilderness. Anybody is kosher for, to do so. But once they affixed who, which Kohanim Gedolim are going to be, they, they fixed the practice of how it's going to happen. So then they said, a Kohen Gadol is going to do this and not, not one of the rest of Bnei Israel who's not a Kohen, right? Technically speaking, it would not invalidate the Avoda, but there's a, a sense here put on the put on the whole practice, right? To make sure that only Kohanim would be doing this. And then lastly in this mission, then your I'm turning it over to you. So he says there's a story about a person named Arsla who's going to illustrate how this whole story, how the above part of the Mishnah was not always the case. Meaning Rav Yosef is present in this Mishnah to be a dissenting voice on the practice. What did he do? He was an Israelite, meaning one of Yisraelim as opposed to Kohanim or Levium, right? So there was this person. He was a Yisrael. The Keves Asulo Mipne Habav Leim Shayu Metalshim Beshzaro Vomrim Vomrimo Tulvetse Tulvetse. So Kevin Ramp. Because of these Babylonian Jews, right? So they made a ramp for the goat. That because of these Babylonian Jews from Yerushalayim, what would they do? They would pluck the They would pull out the goat's hair, and then they would say to the goat, "Take our sins, tul v'tzei, tul v'tzei. Take our sins and go." meaning don't leave them with us, which is a really dramatic presentation, I guess, of the sense of, I, I don't know if we're going to say vicarious atonement, but certainly the idea that the goat has some ability to carry our sins literally, you know, to dispose of them, to atone for them. Well, I think you see, you know, what started to happen, which is when you have physical manifestations of something that makes atonement, it's kind of a human nature that there may be some people who sort of literally want to have a piece of that. And that's basically what happened. Um, and I think that was a perversion of what, it, you know, what a korban is or what it symbolically was supposed to mean. And so they quickly had to, you know, change the procedure so that people didn't actually have physical access to the goat itself. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think it's exactly what happened. I just think it's kind of a shame that we're oh yes people are always predictable that's no, there's nothing new I, I i mean it's not shocking that this happened um but it's interesting to see that it's sort of acknowledged was a problem and how they solved it um i just want to point out two things in the gemara and i apologize i have a little bit of laryngitis today so my voice may sound a little quieter than usual um, i'm laughing so, at you i have laryngitis every day i, <laughs> I should apologize all the time I, I feel it today. But anyhow, hopefully it'll be better tomorrow. I've had it for a few days. Um, so better. the Gemara first gets into a whole discussion, you know, doing a Midrash Halachav. How do they know 
certain halachot of how this seyar mishtalech can be carried out. That it doesn't have to be a kohen, that it can be done on Shabbat for, and things like that. Um, and then, and that also that it can be done in Tuma. But then they get into a interesting discussion. Shalud Rabbi Eliezer. They ask Rabbi Eliezer, What if the goat becomes sick, right? Do, does the person carry it now on his shoulder? Amar says to them, right? Is it like, kind of gives like a weird non- specific answer and he answers to them he says is it meaning the goat sort of healthy enough right that it would be able to carry you and me together like he's sort of saying to them like this is it something that's really going to happen any goat that they pick it's going to be a good enough goat that it's going to be so healthy it's never going to be needed to be carried right and it's going to be so healthy he's jokingly saying or not jokingly I guess but sort of brushing off the question by saying the goat could even carry you and me um, and then they sort of go through, you know, another question. Let's say the person who's supposed to take the goat out gets too sick, right? And can't, you know, sort of lead the goat out. Do they send somebody else to replace him? You and I will be in peace. Again, sort of this idea like, why are you asking all of these types of questions? This is not something that would ever happen. They ask him a third question. Let's say he shoves the goat off the cliff, but it doesn't actually die. Right? What's the loss? Should the person have to go down and actually kill it? Because it's supposed to die once it gets pushed off the, the cliff, as we'll see later on. And so he says, may all of your enemies go lost to Hashem. Again, he quotes a pasuk here from Shoftim, uh, chapter 5, verse 31. And the idea is that he's sort of giving a very evasive answer. Then this same Brisa concludes by saying, come and they'll give the actual answers to these questions. Right, if he becomes the goat sick, he carries it on his shoulders. If the person taking the goat out becomes sick, you send somebody else. And if he shoves it off the cliff and it doesn't die, he actually should go down and kill it. Um, and, you know, it, what's interesting here, then they go through a series of other questions that he was asked, um, you know, that he also answers sort of very uh, evasively. Um, I won't read all of them through. They're, they're very obvious what they are. But the Brysa then sort of concludes, that, and that's in a separate Brysa. And that Brysa ends, Lomi it's not because Rabbi Eliezer was putting them off with words. It wasn't that he was trying to change the subject and didn't want to answer these questions. He would never say anything that he had not heard directly um, from his teachers. Um, and, um, you know, it's sort of interesting to see because Rabbi Eliezer, who's a ton, is known to be very, very logical, right? And he's known to sort of uh, always be able to have a good retort or a good answer for something. He does a lot of Kalva Homer. But here they're giving a different parameter, which is even though his lines of re- his ability to reason was known to be great, if it was not a halakha that he learned uh, directly, right? It's not something that he would actually teach. I think there's a few ways to understand what's going on in the Gemara. I think when you first read it, right, 
um, he's almost in a way sort of making a comment. And Anne, you brought this up while we were preparing this stuff, um, you know, which is that like, we have literally been dealing with death after death after death of all these hypotheticals and every permutation possible of any halachic scenario we have. So now we have this price with the halachic permutations of what if something happens as the goat is trying to come out? And on first read, you're sort of reading this as like Rabbi Eliezer saying like, enough with the hypotheticals. Like it's really enough already. This is just not going to happen. It's going to go smoothly. The Brisa sort of qualifies it. Again, it's not the Brisa directly with the one with Yom Kippur by saying he had a thing where he just didn't really teach things that weren't, you know, that he didn't have a direct answer to. I want to make a jump and say, I think what he's sort of saying here is, is that he's almost saying in a way his teachers thought of everything. And if this was a hypothetical that his teachers didn't address directly, he didn't think this was something that could actually happen. So therefore, it didn't even need to be commented on because it wasn't a, a scenario that could actually come to be true. Um, so I just thought this was a, a you know, a very interesting, uh, you know, sort of passage giving us a little bit of an insight into, I think, a commentary a little bit on all the hypotheticals we've had in Yom Kippur and giving us a little bit of an insight into Rabbi Eliezer. And again, this is Rabbi Eliezer Ben Herkinis. We're going to learn a lot more about him. Um, he's definitely a Tanu of, let's say, the school of Beit Shammai, um, and it was known to be sort of a very sort of strict personality. So this sort of fits with him. If he can't answer it, he's not answering it. So I appreciate that. But also I appreciate the, I don't know what, the human face really on this discussion. Because until now, I don't mean that we didn't have names of people asking questions or giving answers, but we weren't seeing them interact. Not really, not in the past few pages. So that when they ask him these questions and he says, you know, especially at the beginning, like, this is not an issue. Like, you know, rest assured, we don't need to worry about this right now. And I feel like, isn't that so much of what people complain about? It's questions that we shouldn't really need to be worrying about. And so he's able to say, you know, that kind, that particular question, you know, hold off. Don't worry about it at this time until he kind of gets pulled in and then and then answers. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that's a good read of what's going on there. And then the last thing I just want to conclude with is, you know, again, we get to this whole thing about the Babylonians that really these people won't read the whole passage, but they weren't really Babylonians. They were Alexandrians. Right. But essentially that, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, they don't like anyone you didn't like. You called them a Babylonian. <laughs> so we just, again, see this thing that sort of very complicated relationship with people from Babel. And that, you know, that's sort of what people who lived in Eretz Yisrael, they really wanted to insult you. They insulted you by saying you were basically. Um, and and I, I wonder if some of that tension comes from already from Ezra, because when we see the Shibat Zion in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's very clear that when they're given permission to go up to Yerushalayim after 70 years of exile and rebuild a second Beit HaMikdash, not everybody comes. It's only a portion of the people and a group of people do stay in Babel. And I wonder if that's just like not looked upon as a good thing. And maybe that's sort of where it comes out that, you know, choosing to stay in Babel or being a Babylonian is not a great thing. Although note that it's not edited out, meaning the people who live in Babel have the final say, right? The way the editorial process happens, that the Talmud Bavli wins, right? It, it became our dominant text and it was edited, compiled, and then revised and revised 
in part in Babel. And the Babylonians, meaning the Jews in Babylonia, do not edit out the complaint about them. You know, maybe they think it reflects poorly on the Jews in Israel to begin with, um, which, you know, might be part of like a tacit, quiet warfare. Or they might say like, okay, but this is how it happened. So we're not going to be messing with the complaint, even if we, you know, don't think it's worthy. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think the fact that they keep it is super interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously something the editor wanted in there. Well, that's our DAP discussion. Oh, wait, before we end, just to remind everybody again, please pay attention to our Facebook page. Uh, we will have information about registering for our upcoming SIUM, Amasachad Yuma, on July 11th. And with that, I will say that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>